the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotic. Before I get started with our guest today, I do want to throw out, I've got a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. If you can, I know times are hard, but if you're enjoying the show and you can spare a buck, consider it. This will be another entry in our Wicked Leotard series. We're on episode five. This episode will be focusing on chapter four from the Grant translation titled Trade. We have our libidinal players returning. We have Taylor Atkins, Cute Numina, and Young Agamben. I wanted to take a look at what money is and currency and so forth. So I was taking a look at David Graeber's debt. I forget what the subtitles like debt, what, like five, the first 5,000 years or something like that. As part of that, it was interesting. Like he's going through this sort of anthropological look at currency and debt and exchange, and which I think is obviously pretty relevant here to a libidinal economy, especially in the context of. It seems like Graeber is saying that maybe the first exchange is but is women is the exchange of women between tribes yeah. or clans or what have you. That actually comes up very uh, the same in Deleuze's theory of yeah. trade as a horizontal trade of women across tribes. The lateral being the form of capitalism, and then the patrilineage being the passing down generation to generation, where the woman is the lateral trade, patrilineal, like the father. The male has this, what would you call like, if it's not lateral, what's the opposite? Just vertical is the right way to say it. Like that patrilineal line versus the capitalist lateral transaction of women is the exact start of trade in anti-Oedipus. What I think is interesting is this. So for Marx, right, it's our, our relation to production as class is preeminence. But through this lens, it feels like it's really more so the relation to reproduction is the primary social relation, especially looking at it through this historical development of currency that yeah. Graeber is kind of going through. Like he gives an example of, I forget which time period, and I may even have it. Okay. In ancient Ireland, female slaves were so plentiful and important that they came to function as currency. How did this happen? And if we are trying to understand the origins of money here, isn't the fact that people are using one another as currency at all interesting or significant. This quote, this excerpt from Philip Grierson about money in the barbarian law codes. Compensation in the Welsh laws is reckoned primarily in cattle and in the Irish ones in cattle or bondmaids with Kumal in parentheses, spelled C-U-M-A-L, which has its own interesting like, you know, connotations. I guess like the whole talk about this section, I'm really interested in kind of like the notion of what is money as it comes up in this book, or I guess particularly in this section, I'll go after you bring up the definition, Coop, if you don't mind. So Kumal is a female servant or slave, and that's like one definition in Old Irish. 
And then a second is a unit of measurement generally worth three milking cows. Based. This is making me feel like GIAC is, uh, has a lot of purchase. And that that relation to reproduction, especially whenever production is getting virtualized now, there's something significant about that as well. Now our relations to reproduction of spectacle or simulation or whatever the case may be. I don't know how to like flesh that out into like a fully (laughs) (laughs) exactly, but maybe somebody could up on that idea. It reminds me of the big break for me with Althusser in his essay on ideological state apparatuses when he says something similar that like it's not it's not that capitalism is oriented around production it's around its own reproduction right. and that's the the use of ideology state apparatuses but I think certainly. that is a base the ideology of say 20th century ideology control is certainly there but I think there's something more than what Althusser says that you're picking up on of the reproduction of the virtual, the reproduction of spectacle, for me takes the place of the ideological reproduction. And maybe ideology is still sort of in that spectacle, but for me, there's a difference between ideologically training or ideologically reproducing people and reproducing capitalism itself, which I think now we've we've seen it actually may not need its own ideology if it can recreate a spectacle that sort of blunts. Successfully enough, yeah. Right, exactly, exactly. Just to tie to what Coop and Young, what you've mentioned, it's kind of like one of the properties of money in general is like its fungibility, how it reproduces Mm -hmm. itself. To tie it to a direct metaphor (laughs) of female reproduction, what I guess like this thing that's historically or maybe reoccurring in the history of the emergence of capitalism as an economic mode is the necessity of like labor. And so there's this virtuality that exists within reproduction of you know people in general which is like they're necessary they're necessary labor units and so there's this infinite potential of virtuality that's in procreation (laughs) and i think uh, leotard kind of talks about this a little bit at the beginning of the chapter um but it's like you know it's the creation of the warrior it's the creation of a laborer and then on top of that, you know, it's like the propagation of, let's call it like the historical culture of that time period. In this case, tying it back to what you said, Young, in terms of ideology, this very like successive yeah. notion of cultural propagation, which yeah. in itself is a propagation of the current economic mode of production. To tie it back to that quote, I don't know who quoted it, but it's like, there's no such thing as a primitive, there's no, there's no primitive societies. Right. Yeah. That um, was Lydia Leotard. Okay. So in, in that sense, that there is no primitive societies. Like this all ties back to this notion. it all goes back notion. to the economy, right? Exactly. And so I, I guess in that sense, it's like this this ever-present virtuality of, how would I say? Is it exchange like, maybe? I don't know. Yeah, like yeah, like exchange. Like I said, the like iron ex- in the last episode, I call it like the iron law of exchange. Like even in communication, it's like there's no escaping the back and forth transactional like um, oh, ledger and like seesaw and even you could like apply that to the little bindle band like heating up and cool you're passing these yeah. signals back and forth i don't know but go ahead sorry it's its own self-enclosed dialectic if that makes sense or the um, mobius strip the mobius strip the twisting maybe the twisting of the strip or whatever interpolation of it is what make, gives the appearance of a dialectic or yeah a, because a, an inside because outside because it's going from this point of the desire, this and like a Lacanian sense, this this sort of lack that exists, and then it tries to compensate that, or at least like in that quote that I brought up in the chat, 
where it's like is that how like currency product. currency is trying to account is like an accounting for the lack to bring it back to lack i i don't know yeah it's <laughs> like a half-assed yeah, formulation but. yeah no to like bring it back to lack. no i think i think you're onto it because okay for example the currency in a way creates a yeah, it creates a value. It tries to account for everything, the distribution of exchanges of resources. It's a ledger. And then in that sense, it tries to, I mean, in the Marxist, in the Marxist sense, it's like you get rid of use value. And so you only have, what are the two? No, you get, yeah. of, you get rid of exchange value and focus. You, yes, exchange value. and use value. And so in that sense, the desire is capped. It kind of de-intensifies the desire in order to be able to create these returning transactions for example it's well you can't have well at least now you can't but at least at, at the time these primitive societies you know you can call them primitive you didn't have year-round let's say like peaches or something like that just as an example so you would have to create these kind of like returning cycles of, okay well now there's peaches now there's a, a moment where you can trade those peaches for currency and so you create a market system or you know, you create an exchange system for these items, these commodities. And in that sense, it's, that's all built up in desire, the desire, you know, for this, for this commodity, this item, which is the peach, but that desire is capped precisely because of this market system, because you can't, I mean, if it, if it was kind of like how it is today, in a way, modern capitalism has kind of overcome this where you can have peaches year round, but that's precisely because of this. It's this intensive, I guess, to some right. extent, desire has overcome that through whichever you know, like mechanisms. Markets don't regulate prices. Markets regulate desire. Yes. Right. Yeah. And then it's capitalism's continual overcoming of this, this over-intensification of desire. That's kind of like, it sounds very accelerationist because it's, oh, it's to accelerate the process. Oh, well, capitalism can't overcome this contradiction, X contradiction. And then somehow it overcomes it. It has, overcomes it. It has this qualitative change. Right. In a way, that's like a, a qualitative change that occurs with currency or like innovation, you could you could call it. I know that sounds very like ANCAP or like libertarian, but... <laughs> there are no contradictions. It's only disequilibrium. Exactly. You know what is kind of interesting? Okay, so just a couple of quick points and then I'll go back mm -hmm. to you. Reading the, the Graeber book on debt, he describes a first instance of currency being tied to this trade, this exchange of women and currency specifically being utilized whenever the debt cannot be fully repaid in the sense of there's no, there's only one human being that is my, whatever, my daughter or my niece or my ward. He goes through these different relations, relationships that men had in these different patriarchal societies and this currency would stand for a debt that cannot be repaid. And this even, he talks about how this same sort of concept functions in the context of the blood feud as well and so forth, which I thought was, was pretty interesting, especially in the context of this nullification that Leotard is focusing heavily on in this chapter. Something you had brought up earlier was this lateral movement. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, that very much reminded me of the eternal deferral of, of desire through the Abhya. Yeah. yeah. It has that similar sort of horizontal movement to it as well. Deferral to deferral to deferral, et cetera. I think it's an interesting just to think through while, we, while we're here, like what, it, what reproduction 
of capitalism entails because it's it's something that might be easy to comprehend but there's there's many facets of it that i think we need to sort of fully comprehend to understand the loyatardian reproduction because i think his version of reproduction gets so complicated that i can't really reach that level without constantly reminding myself of what he's referring to so if we think about like capitalism and what it wants it doesn't actually want to just produce one thing right like say we have capitalism in a certain country produces X GDP. The goal is not just to produce that GDP, it's to reproduce that GDP or or higher every year, right? So at, at one level, we have to reproduce the infrastructure, the infrastructure, the economic infrastructure to recreate that value again and again, infinite. But then we have increasingly more complicated things that need to be reproduced. Like you're saying, you need to reproduce the very desire that's driving the production of those objects to begin with. In order to do that, you need to reproduce culture. You need to reproduce an underclass. And you can see this time after time again. And sometimes there's disruptions to the system. In the American South, when slavery ended, there needed to be a reproduction of that lower class. So they invented sort of the new mechanism was sharecropping. And it goes with Graeber's idea of debt. It just put these people in debt and they'll never be able to do anything but work for you as if they're in slavery. So the system reproduced basically a new a new ideological or a new conceptual framework to understand a lower class in order to reproduce itself again. So there's simultaneously this reproduction of the same, but there's also different. Obviously, Deleuze's difference in repetition can be applied to capitalism. When it reproduces itself, you know, maybe it is the same. I mean, maybe for that particular time period, the reproduction is basically the same. But for something like massive historical changes or changes to economic, ideological, or cultural infrastructure requires capitalism to reproduce itself in slightly different variants, but with a toolkit that allows it to self-perpetuate time after time again. So there's all of these, these small building blocks of reproduction that can be shuffled around or that need to be reproduced as they were that I think gets almost infinitely complex. I mean, that's like the study of reproduction itself could take you in a lifetime. I want to know if anyone has a way to understand or has a grasp on this this look into to Greece circa like Aristotle's sort yeah. of time and this contrast that Leotard draws between the Athenians and the Lydians in terms of prostitution and homosexuality and exchange and so forth. I didn't quite I couldn't quite understand exactly what he was getting at there, but I think there is relevance, especially like you brought up young that reproduction element and the creation of the underclass, right? Because it's the underclass of slaves in Athens that allows the upper class to do their... To reproduce uh, itself, right? Right, to reproduce itself, but also to produce philosophy and like all this other bourgeois, whatever, ruling class shit that they're doing, right? Well, I mean, I took the the difference between the Athenians and the, the Lydians in or it's not even just the Athenians, right? He says it's just, it's Greek culture. It's the, the Hellens in general, right? Right. That, that for Leotard with the Hellenic culture, the whole point of, and you were getting to it, the whole point of the reproduction of children is just a means to an end of being able to sort of free up portions of the libido to invest in this kind of, transmutation of desire into concepts 
right? And so this is why he keeps coming back to the speaker, to the orator who takes the center of the stage and it could potentially in, in, the, in the Republic be like any citizen, right? Which would be restricted to, to this, this homo sociality, right? This, so this is why he says like in the Hellenics, the prostitution is really prostitution of penises because it is about this circulation the jouissance is, is instantiated on the on the, the homosexual warrior bodies, right? And it's it's kind of confined to that. And why he says the Lydians take a step further toward capitalism is that they prostitute their daughters. Right. Mm-hmm. And by prostituting their daughters, not their wives, who are reserved for the filial reproduction, by prostituting their, their daughters, he says they commit them to sterility. And on uh, the other hand, they make them enter into the circular game of the exchange market as goods and proprietors of goods, right? So instead of this kind of, you know, I'd rather be fucking my buddy, but I have to fuck my wife to ensure reproduction, it's that the, the vagina is seen as just as good as the anus to enter on the market and be canceled out through money. This is why he says uh, that the, the Lydian citizen does not impregnate this woman, his daughter. He indemnifies her, which literally is like he compensates her for a loss. Or right. Yeah, like double um, indemnity insurance yes. or whatever. He pays her, <laughs> and this payment money is the same as that in circulation on the goods market. By paying her, he can, having consumed her, annul her consumption, pay off his debt to her. Since this money will return to the center in one way or another when the daughter or her proprietor having some need to satisfy, this goes back to this question of money and the convention of the need for need, as he says, having some need to satisfy, will come looking for the complimentary good from him. And so nothing will happen. I took that anticipation of capitalism that he says, it reminded me at the beginning of the first volume of Capital, right? Where Marx is going through the, was it 10 pounds of wheat for, for a coat, that kind of shit, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah 10 bales or whatever. Um, so it's kind of, it's, it's something like that, right? That this, this there is this leftover if you will of the which is the indemnification itself of the the daughter's prostitution and the leftover is it gets back to what to that quote that cute shared with us about this temporality this omnitemporality of exchange right so that 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 like it's almost like a you could almost say that the prostitution of the daughter is a down payment for the fulfillment of a future need. And in yes, this, yes. this zero sum right. game kind yes. of thing. Yes. Fuck yeah. Right. That's, so that's good. And I, and I think that, that the only thing that, so the Lydians kind of make sense to me, even though we, we would consider that perverse on our end, but I mean, this, this whole book is kind of trying to, trying to show how the sort of evolution of money, the form right. of money and the metamorphosis of, uh, that, that it entails, it's nothing, is precisely this, this divvying up of, of polymorphous, perverse sections of, of the libidinal band yeah. through and embodies what he calls annulatory exchange, right? Which I mentioned yesterday is about, it's not just about the circle and the strip, but it is literally, you know, about annulling, canceling out, right, in the zero. I think with the, I think it's important with the Hellenics, as you said, about, you know, you mentioned obviously too, something that Leotard has already kind of covered and just assumes we, we remember, um, you know, this notion of the, of the slave class. And, you know, I'm sure that historians, and I can't remember, I'm trying to remember the historian of the- Herodotus? I know he brings them up here, but th- there's this just basic fact that the numbers of slaves versus the numbers of quote unquote citizens, the numbers of 
slaves, women, and children, if you really want to get to, if you want to really want to generalize the underclass, is 10 to 1, or like overwhelmingly. It was certainly high in Sparta. Right, yeah. Yeah. So I think that the, the question about... I think this is why he brings up Alcibiades and Socrates again, right? With this question of the of the two penises, right? The one for payment, one for civic jouissance. And the civic jouissance in the Hellenic sense does seem to be this, this question. I mean, we've talked about it before. Socrates doesn't play Alcibiades' game because, not only because to a certain extent in his old age and in his wisdom, he's like moved beyond the simple pleasures of the body, blah, 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 even though that's inscribed in the platonic myth, if you will, the legend of Socrates. But it's, as, as Leotar says, there's nothing to be gained in the exchange. I think that's for Socrates. And I, I kind of get that. You, you can see it on, on the surface, at least of the text, that like, you know, not just that Socrates is disinterested in, in some sort of, he doesn't, first of all, he's, as I said, he, he's not, he doesn't want to fuck Alcibiades. There's nothing to be gained on his part. And there's no knowledge that Alcibiades can can give him. So to a certain extent, Socrates' wisdom, which is what Alcibiades wants, in this kind of Lacanian other other supposed to know, right? Socrates is that par excellence, right? He's that's why he's the figure of the analyst later on in this chapter. You know, it's precisely that in a certain sense, Socrates' knowledge is both sort of invaluable, but also sort of beyond and beneath value, right? It, it can't be canceled out in money. It can't be canceled out in exchange. This is why there's a certain mystique to him, even though the principle of, of, of the Hellenic society is that, you know, there is this space opened up wherein words and thinking, words and concepts can be some sort of rough equivalent for these pulsional energies. And this is precisely what Leotard is trying to like problematize and, and trying to like get us to, to think about and why he brings us to analysis at the end of the chapter and saying like analysis functions like sacrifice and prostitution, but it, it goes further because it's not just about reactivating jouissance, but the, he says it does three things, right? It, so it trans, transmutes, metamorphoses uh, jouissance into money and it also transforms desire into concepts through speech, right? And then it tries to reimpose a quote-unquote normal sexuality, a normal genitality on bodies. In Freudian practice, those bodies are always women, which gets us back to the, the question of the, the reproductive body. When we're talking about part object, am I reading to literally if I say that a woman is cut up into her reproductive capacity is that a part object or am i well it's precisely it's precisely prostitution that takes us out of the fixation on the on the womb and the uterus which for the helens is just a kind of a necessary evil in the circulation of sexual desire and the prostitute it could be for the client it could be any that's precisely what the so, yeah, so it I could mean, be the, the woman, breast or the mouth or the ass or whatever. Right. Na- natural propagation would center it on the genitals. This is what Freud, in the, this is what uh, Leotard is getting with, with Freud, with uh-huh. quote unquote, curing these hysteric bodies. Yeah. Um, whereas in, in the Hellenic society, and even in the Lydians, by, you know, by his, Leotard keeps pointing this out, it's this, there's sterilization for the Hellens is on the side of, of the penises, right? Because it is about this homosexually erotic warrior society. Right. And then for the Lydians, it's the sterilization of the womb precisely because 
the client isn't looking for yeah, they're not a wound to, to impregnate. It's, right, it's looking for a you know a piece it's going to yeah oh to null or to nullify the libidinal energy right 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 uh, that's interesting. And this is why he says that the Lydians are, are closer to us. They anticipate capitalism. Yeah. They do you think that Leotard is doing anything to vindicate Freud's early focus on on like the libido as almost like will or what have you? I'm not sure if that's... Right, because like a lot of times, all right, Freud gets re- reduced to, oh, it's, he, he thinks it's all about sex or at least, let, you know what I mean? Like in the popular imagination, right? You know, early Freud, it, it, I think it, what's interesting about early Freud is that um, he didn't generalize and universalize his seduction theory. That's what Laplanche says. Right? Gotcha. That, okay. that, that, and what, what that means is that Freud, I think, takes the sexual act too literally early on. Right. Right. Where he, he thinks that he thinks that symptoms point back to in the early is form point back to a real kind of sexual scene and violation. And he doesn't until later figure out the real primary role of fantasy. Right. This is this is kind of where he's he's kind of slipping back and forth into, well, you know, you have symptoms and therefore need analysis because something because you were you were actually raped, actually molested, et cetera. And then he realizes, well, shit, we're all kind of fucked up in a certain way. Can't have happened to everyone that they were, they were always already sort of taken advantage of by an adult. And this is where he, he has the realization, he abandons the seduction theory and has the realization that fantasy plays this role. For Laplanche, he says that we can, we can still use the seduction theory. We just have to take it less literally. We have to think about it Generally, now, yeah. because because this is why he goes back to the child at the breast. There are circulation, a uh, circulation of intensities, pleasure being exchanged both for the child and the the mother or, or her yeah, substitute. Yeah. And that little there's little shards of sexuality implanted in the burgeoning, chaotic, inchoate unconscious of the uh, of the child that will later form the kind of bedrock after you know, you've got these different periods where you, you start to grow an ego and then you go through the latency of puberty and yada, yada. But yeah, I mean, I mean, for him, it's, it's about these messages that are implanted that can't, that the child is not yet able, not yet equipped with the ability to decipher. And that's, that's kind of what structures or provides the scaffolding for the future development of the, of the unconscious. So to get back to your point about I think with Freud, he's, uh, Leotard is, he's definitely not wanting us to just forget Freud in a way. His reliance on Freud, I think it predates anti-Oedipus. He puts a lot of attention on Freud's notion of negation. I think in French, it's translated as, as denegation. It's Verneinung. He even brings it up in this chapter and earlier. And it's about how he says, right, it's about the conscious doesn't either know contradiction or, or negation. The mode of the negative is, is right, not doesn't really work on that. And on that level, we can't take Freud literally, or we can't take Freud metaphorically. We have to take his metaphors sort of literally. It's it's on the same page as when he brings up Ulysses, right? As the okay, I think as the economy as the commodity going from form to form, right? It's the voyage of the concept. So we must take Freud's metaphors quite seriously here. That is to say, we must not take them as metaphors or take them just as they are, those by which with the help of images of foreign towns or countries such as Rome or Egypt, just like Piranesi's prisons or Escher's other worlds, he suggests 
an entirely affirmative unconscious simultaneously accumulating investments in the most perverse appearances for the logos on every point of a libidinal body. What Freud makes us consider through these arrogant violations of the rudimentary rules of space-time is precisely the aff affirmativity of these occupations of libidinal terrain. And then he brings up Socrates again and nihilism. Nihilism indeed comes from Socrates, doubtless not in the way that Nietzsche thought in his slightly naive faith in dualism and the birth of tragedy, but instead from the model of the talking homosexual warrior citizen, which the early platonic Socrates demonstrates. I want to concretize that exchange that you brought up in terms of the mother and the infant and the feed, the breastfeeding, because that that's almost the circuit of exchange because right, the baby's libidinal force is hunger. And then they're mm -hmm. getting that, that force is getting negated by the mother's milk, but then the mother is also deriving sort of getting us, there's an arousal element to it on their end, yeah. right? There's, there's an exchange of, of pleasure. The infant's hunger and the, the mother's sexual excitation or negation or negate one another to the zero. I don't know. It's, half, half brain thing I thought of. You know, what Leotard will want to do with this discourse on nihilism and nothing mm -hmm. is keep saying that money is, is this general nothing ying, right? Yeah. Kind of like Heidegger, the nothing nothings, right? Money is this this nothing that that reduces it to zero. I, I, I don't know if I would say that, that interpreting the child at the breast is necessarily best done in lack. One can easily do it, right? Lack is a hunger, uh, hunger is a lack, et cetera. But the mother lacks nothing besides, quote unquote, being a, being a good mother, which again, as Freud is good at sometimes, reminding us that it could be a substitute, could be a midwife. For Freud, right, we, we have, he has this like, quasi concept called propping, right? That the, that the sexual drive and the self-preservative drive are really like kind of glued together at the start because, because of our helplessness as children, right? We, we need those, those first few and however many years we need the father protector, the mother provider, the mother caregiver, the life, life giver, even the nourisher. It's only later progressively these, these drives start to diverge, but they share a common kind of propping, let's just say tangency, right? Yeah. Kind of connection. Yeah, it's interesting to think about what you're talking about in that it's almost the, the child yearning for the breast and the mother's pleasure are two sides of a ledger, mm -hmm. you know, and the child's right. lack, yeah. need for that is sort of say a negative or a positive. I don't think it really matters which way you want to yeah, yeah. buy the ledger, but then the mother's pleasure, it might be a slight sexual pleasure. It's more just an enjoyment, a joyousance. Yeah. Like having your baby suckle on your teeth is another pot, say like a positive desire where she doesn't lack that, but she gains a pleasure from it almost in the same way as the prostitute who enjoys her work yeah. is basically gaining an excess enjoyment that right. negates the desire of the man to want to have sex with her. Yes, the baby's yes, exactly. desire for the, the the teat is negated by the mother's enjoyment of the baby's suckling. Nice. Yeah, that was a better articulation. Well, it's it, and it's and it's also. I mean, I, I think here if we, it seems like if we stick on the conscious level, then then we can talk about yeah. negation in that way, right? But I think for Freud, unconsciously, you can't even really call it an exchange of intensities, right? It's just that these are flows of intensity circulating. Yeah, you're right though to say that there is this leftover, there is this little remainder of the pleasure of the, the mother. And, and Freud would talk about this later in terms of sexuality and civilization and its discontents in terms of nature has this kind of interesting ruse whereby it attaches this little excess of, this little surplus value of, of enjoyment to the sexual act 
in order to reinsure the reproduction of species, yes. right? right? So yeah. that's very important for, for later Freud, especially with because he increasingly is thinking economically yeah. uh, about the libido and, and, and these things, which gets us obviously, I mean, obviously that's why I think Leotard is, is right to, to continue to bring Freud up and why he's, why he's important for thinking through, thinking through these things. Just a couple of things to kind of riff off on what you guys have said. I'll probably start with what you guys have mentioned about this zero sum game of system of accountability and the way to kind of keep track of these transactional instances. In the, in the case of, you know, the mother and the child, there's that transaction, the, the baby satisfies his hunger, the mother obtains some sort of pleasure, that's, there's some sort of annulment there. Maybe it's not even a, a satisfies her pleasure. It, it just She's a good mom, like Taylor mentioned. And then, you know, there, there's a surplus in, in terms of whatever pleasure she derives from that. That's a surplus. It's almost like a fungible attribute that's also tied to money. Because you can have this zero-sum accountability, like money as a, just as a ledger. It's a point system. So Young gives me two points or whatever. I give one point to Taylor the depth there and, and that sort of transaction is resolved. I only owe Taylor one point. The system is already enclosed in that transaction. But there seems to be this, at least tying it back to zero in terms of this notion that Nick Land brings up, especially in his book, Thirst, Thirst for Annihilation. You know, that passage that's quoted a lot, zero is immense in the sense that zero almost acts like this. We talked about this very early on in the podcast about how zero acts almost like as this body without organs or as this like virtual space. In a lot of ways, it's almost like this this imminence of zero, this this virtuality that exists within it, that it's in itself a fungible attribute of currency. So for example, I'm gonna tie this into <laughs> like blockchain just based on like Nick Land's work, because I that's what I mentioned earlier in the chat, how I think there's a lot of stuff here, especially in Leotard's work and then in anti-Oedipus that really ties into a lot of Nick Land's early work and then a lot of his later work even in terms of how money itself is produced. So in a lot of ways, like the history of the transactions in any system, even the history of how those material conditions are formed are part of this successive block in the blockchain. And the production of a new block, either whether it's the same, whether it validates all of the previous history, in this case, all of the previous culture, all of the previous material conditions that necessitate the formation you know, of those same material conditions that formulate GDP, culture, the patriarchal system, all of those can be seen as the history of the blockchain. And if they're, you know, a new block is backwards compatible with all of that, then it will form, emulate, or it will self-propagate itself in the same way that capital does. And that production of that new block then is the same property or the same fungible attribute of money. In that sense, cryptocurrency, obviously, or Bitcoin is a raw version of money in a way of this currency. It's just a technical version of currency. And the way that I feel Leotard has been bringing it up, this material libidinal exchange that has this meta currency to it, it's not technical. It's it's purely cultural or maybe even, as I already mentioned, libidinal desires that are, it's kind of like that investment that we were talking about. The father regains, you know, any sort of lost or losses by trading his daughters a regain of loss or expenditure, which we see happen in capitalism all the time. It's like, oh, well, there's always has to be a return on investment plus a little more, that which is interest, which then is just tying back to capitals, just capitals 
or capitalism's primary property currency, which is fungibility. But then on top of that, I think there's this, I think it's even brought up in anti-Oedipus, you know, the whole notion of anti-Oedipus is this kind of like affirmative, like a positive view of desire, which is like desire is produced. And in a lot of ways, Leotard's work is kind of saying, or kind of taking the the step that desire is lacking or, you know, the Lacanian form of desire. But if we view as desire as something affirmative, as something that is produced, or even in like in Bataille's notion of excess, there's always a little surplus, which you could say maybe is part of a new block or a new part or element in that already self-enclosed positive feedback system, which is the exact property of currency as a fungible token. I don't know if that makes sense, but like the fact that you can even reproduce currency or money in general is trying to account for that surplus of desire in the first place. And it's in a way the market system, when it tries to create value and tries to adjust itself by, uh, you know, either creating more money or whatever, it's already trying, it's already preemptively trying to encapture or codify those desires, if that makes sense. In terms of currency, especially when it comes to um, modern fiat currency, currency is literally debt. And so if you look at the dollar, right, it's it's a note. It's a, the note. It's a promise for repayment. The debt is created on one side of the ledger and the currency is created on the other when it comes to the central bank issuing government bonds or whatever or treasuries. That's how money is created. So money is literally debt to be repaid, which goes back to like that early conception that I was talking about where the chieftain or the clan leaders would utilize their daughter or wards or whomever, nieces, et cetera, et cetera. Whomever that would, women were sort of a form of currency in that sense. And in that exchange, they would use some form of money because that couldn't be accounted for. That's the sort of debt that cannot be repaid, which I think goes back to symbolic exchange and death with maybe death being something that throws that whole system into disequilibrium. I don't know. I don't know exactly how to square that with, with cryptocurrency. Because like the thing with money, right, is at least nominally is, what is it really? It's a system of equivalence, right? We're trying to figure out practically in the market, how do I, how do we mediate this debt in this relationship? I give you cash money, that cash money is a debt. So you take that my promise of to repay the debt and you use that promise that I've given you to repay a future debt. Isn't that just the production of, instead of seeing it as this system of lack, this production, like the production of lack in a way, but it's even in the production of lack, it's still positive. That makes sense. That's the thing about, especially I think for me with Lacan and, and lack is just because lack is a negative doesn't mean that it's doesn't produce or avoid cannot be productive. I think that's one of the big things to take from Hegel or like Lacan Sterner is this sort of counterintuitive notion that the negative can produce. If you see, like a positive they, force. That makes, yeah, because in a sense, is that not what currency is doing, right? <laughs> kind of? Well, yeah. I mean, that's how I would see it because, okay, yeah. so like that ties back to that notion of point system, uh, like money as just as a point system. It just keeps track of of transactions in general. But the incentive for keeping track of those transactions would be the production of new tokens, at least in crypto. I mean, that's why you create new tokens or you could say blocks. It's just that it's 
it's to keep track of more transactions the ledger system so in a way like if money in my my view i guess or in my opinion isn't so much as just a way to keep keep track of things the whole system of keeping track of things in itself has a value that escapes the individual oh, constituents of value yeah that's yeah. interesting that's really interesting so, I think. so in that sense the fact that you even have a system that keeps track of things that produce or sorry that keeps track of exchange as a whole has a value outside of that system oh uh, yeah yeah that in itself Good. is already a productive force to uh, incentivize yeah. people to use that system i think the lack or the debt side of it like you're saying q2 can be thought of as almost a arbitrary and i don't use arbitrary pejoratively but just an arbitrary conceptual or ontological distinction of the ledger right when you do accounting and you oh say $10 million. Dual accounting, right? <laughs> right, right. You do your liability on your balance sheet. It's a liability on your side of the ledger. It's a lack. And on the person who's lending to you, that's an asset. So right. it's like, that's the same money. It's the same thing. It's the same amount of money, but it's on two different sides of a ledger. That's almost the body without organs yes. distinction. The theoretical distinction of where the lack is, where the excess is, whereas that's just sort of like you're saying, it's all productive, right? But the lack is a conceptual way to sort of like separate the ledger of plus and minus. Yeah, it's that disequilibrium even, across the yeah. Mobius strip. I think the exactly. even Leotard brings this up uh, when he talks about like A and B. Hold on, let's see where that is. Give that section where he, the sort of, he kind of goes through where the surplus comes yeah. through, or is it this part on page one, 167? Oh, it's 166, I think, towards the bottom. So okay, I'll read it. Uh, 166. Yeah, there it is. Okay, if yep. the game is yep. zero sum. If all that A can gain is lost by B, if therefore there is no exteriority to the circle of citizens, exchanges, and if they remain in the zero of the milieu, it is clear that the system remains utterly infertile. The society of a merchantman is quite singular, libidinal, dispositif, a dispositif of the libido's cons uh, conservation, and a sort of pulsional treasure constituted by the members of the, and I'm going to butcher this, Cononia? Uh, anybody? Cononia? That's close enough. The wealth of which circulates from one to the other without ever leaving the circle and without any libidinal supplement ever being introduced to it. Therefore, not only is it a very selective dispositif, but a very conservative one in the pulsational sense. For the zero of annulments of exchange is understood in terms of intensities, the sign that the merchant citizen society completely follows. The dictates of regulator of tensions itself programmed on the unit of tension, which is the sum of intensities present throughout the circle. You can even go into the next sentence. If these intensities are entered into a ledger, it is right. because they have already passed through it, the filter of the politia, yes. which excludes, as we have said, enormous pieces of the labyrinth band of the libidinal body. In this case, this market or the city functions as a stable, homeostatically regulated whole, the serial mark, marking the simple return of the state prior to the excitation of exchange. In that sense, the whole market system is already a zero-sum game. Like it's already taken into account the individual libidinal constituents and right. inscribing those onto the ledger, at least in how I view it. The desire is already part of that transaction. There's no excitation or surplus that isn't already to use like a modern word, financially financially accounted for. And, and I think we brought this up last time in terms of uh, the financialization of capital. Oh, well, it's, if it's no longer the product itself and it's just like the virtual potential 
of an object that's important that's already taken into account when we assign the value of a barrel, for example, of oil. Mm. So it's like, yeah, it has this all this virtual infinite potential, potential to maximize yeah. all of these desires. Mm. But at the same yeah. time, that's already qualitatively taken into account with price projections. I'm interested in this idea of, or like crypto in this conversation too, because of the, this is where my question would be in terms of crypto, it feels like it has a lot of the same limitations that commodity backed currency has because of, for one, it's susceptible to scarcity, although not as, I don't think the potential for scarcity is as, has as big of a multiplier impact on crypto as physical currencies yeah. did. And Leotard even goes into this to some degree in the discussion of the mercantilist era, because in that era, whenever currency is fully backed by gold, and I forget when that goes into effect in earnest, but what can happen in that sense is whenever new sources of gold are discovered, right, that could have a devastating impact on your currency, yeah. as an example. And so that, to me, I think is one of the the sort of brilliance of, of fiat currency is its sort of fungibility, its lack of scarcity. Its availability right. is what makes it, is where the utility of currency. But that so also- I don't know how you can account for that with crypto that is a right. scare already a scarce it's a scarce commodity how can that work as money it can work as perhaps a store of value but at the end of the day a store of value is ultimately worthless it's nothing leotard says this i was reading a piece from from bifo the other day and i sent you guys this in the group chat where he's he sounds exactly like leotard here Power is essentially defined as the imposition of rules of linguistic exchange. In fact, money and language have something in common. Both are nothing, yet move everything. Money is a sign without meaning. Meaning is defined by the potency of the act of language and imposed by the force of the subject of enunciation. So not only this, but also even in going back to Graeber and Aristotle. So these are direct quotes from the book Debt. Aristotle had argued that gold and silver had no intrinsic value in themselves and that money was therefore just a social convention invented by human communities to facilitate exchange. Aristotle okay. fixed on the fact that a tally could be anything. What the object was didn't matter. All that mattered was that there was a way to break it in half. It is so exactly, it is exactly so with language. Words or sounds we use to refer to objects or to ideas, but the relation is arbitrary. So, of course, is money for Aristotle not only worthless bronze coins that we agree to treat as if they were worth a certain amount, but all money, even gold, is just a symbol on a social convention. I think there's two major differences with Bitcoin, or I would call them almost revolutionary potential for Bitcoin. I think the first being what we found out is that fiat currency as it stands in the global financial system is not free. It's not a free market. It's open to manipulation by governments by large financial institutions in which it's sort of a ledger that's meant to keep you in that that state of zero that lack of excitation to to the market conditions so what bitcoin allows for me is is possibly a line of flight from the increasingly manipulated financial markets of currency exchange and financial securities in institutional markets right and i think secondly you have the stranglehold that that financial system has on the global south, right? Where they have to continually devalue their currencies to get out of the debt that we put them in, right? Right. Because there's so many IMF loans, there's so many 
loans where we make money on interest, giving money that they can't pay back to say Zimbabwe. And then their currency crashes. And the thing that's holding their value all of a sudden is almost worthless. So for someone in Zimbabwe, there's a revolutionary potential to escape the stranglehold of financial capitalism on their country. Right. By finding value in something that's basically the new gold. Like you're saying, it's something that has a set amount of Bitcoins, you know, and you have to mine further to get more. It, It certainly provides almost like this this new gold standard for people who are basically the ledger is not on their side. The global South basically has no way to sustain some sort of value growth under the current financial hegemony. So perhaps Bitcoin is this line of flight, either for people in the global North who, yeah. who find themselves completely constricted in their financial markets by, you know, the rigidity and the sedimentarity of our financial institutions and the manipulation they have to make money against us and those in the global south who are set up for economic failure just by the political and economic global international financial situation. Yeah. In the broader sense of it, that crypto is still just a worthless, Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, it's a worthless sign. Right. It's trying to stand in for something else, trying to draw equivalence between two objects or subjects that cannot be equivalized really at the end of the day because they are no two things are ever really truly equivalent Mm -hmm. and that obviously i think becomes more of a stark issue whenever you discuss that in the context of the trade of of human bodies and the to like go back to the discussion of like the the trade of women in um more quote-unquote primitive societies if you will i was just gonna mention one quick point because i don't want to get too deep into the philosophy <laughs> of crypto but i think it's all it's relevant, relevant i think for sure absolutely relevant but i think you bring up a good point coop because it's like a lot of the systems of account or accounting these ledgers money in general or money as we're viewing it here exists as a i almost want to use this poorly maybe uh, as this like these positive mm-hmm. money itself is trying to be this as you mentioned already this like third or this middle ground. So lubrication this, for exchange. Right. So it facilitates these, these you could say almost like these transcendental differences right. between yeah. the commodities. And by becoming this, by trying to create this equal, this equal ground, money is an ontological instantiate, instantiation of this abstraction. Yeah. And in that sense, Bitcoin itself, or I guess let's just call it the blockchain, because we don't know which. I think Dogecoin has a better, <laughs> uh, better implementation of blockchain. Implementation yeah. of the blockchain um, for reasons that we can go into, but <laughs> at least in yeah. terms of. I mean, I would I just say crypto largely to as an umbrella term rather than just Bitcoin specifically. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of them now. Ethereum, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Which is like how, how memeable the, a currency is. And. Mm-hmm. This has all interesting implications back to what you brought up, Young, about the mimetic potential between ideas. We can discuss that at another time. In terms of what I'm interested in, it's the mimetic potential of currency itself. For example... It's all about the Benjamins, right? Right. So the thing that gives fiat currency its power is not just, a, not just like its power, it's politically backed, which is... For example, the reason why violence, the, yeah. the dollar is so valued is not mm-hmm. just because of everything that Young brought up about you know how we completely <laughs> destroy the global South's economy and make them dependent on our 
financial system and then by extension, big Benji. But in that sense, it's like money in itself is a, a political extension of the, you know, you could say ruling class or in this case, the United States as a society of control. But as we were mentioning, I think, Young, you, you brought this up out. I yeah, see a function. Ahead. I see a function here, but I want to let you finish. But I just want to say yes, like Young and Gaman, you bring up the good revolutionary potential on the side of the global South. But one of the things that the benefits of fiat currency and its power being backed by like the United States as a hegemon is it's that creates a giant. They create the football field that creates the football field that exchanges can take place on. So it's facilitating exchange because if there's no central field that we can play on then that game becomes it's like whenever any bank could issue currency like that that causes an issue whenever it comes to exchange because it's going to slow down exchange whereas that's the benefit of one dominant currency is you don't have to worry about the additional time to transact across this is what the European Union is trying to do right with the euro is they're trying to eliminate all these different little currencies that are going to slow down transactions and et cetera, et cetera, right? Removing those barriers to transactions to speed them along, that's what is, I think, more so within the, I don't know, teleological, teleology or of teleological structure of capital, right? Yeah, you actually bring up a really good and interesting point, and I swear I'll shut up after this, which is that whole notion of capitalism, or just let's call it capital in the form of currency, what it's trying to do as a functional tool is that it's trying to, as mentioned, it's trying to create that third or that middle ground for the exchange. Yes. It's, I, I love the expression you use, this lubrication between commodity exchange. But in, in that sense, in that sense, when, when you bring up this, this notion of this function in terms of fiat currency, for example, gets traded in it, there's all these centralized systems and it creates this bureaucracy and blah, blah, blah. I think that's even inescapable within crypto in terms of how fungible crypto's currency seem to be. I think it's an, a primary example of this qualitative change of capitalism that it can never fully overcome these contradictions. Instead, it just kind of shifts the borders continuously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if centralization of currency is just an, the next stage, peak financialization of capital is oh, an over-centralization of, of um, an over-centralization of these this mechanism of capital and it's another qualitative revolution that we're going through right now with bitcoin bitcoins or cryptos blockchain is a deterritorialization the re-territorialization is what a future of the transaction what a future of the transaction of cryptos on the internet or as a market economy what that looks like in terms of what it can account for deep right. fragmentation what does that look like like transcendental fragmentation yeah. what does that look mm -hmm. like in terms of for commodities for example let's say yeah you can escape as a country as a whole the market system by introducing your own crypto let's say zimbabwe just completely closes off and it's like yeah we're just going to use crypto within our country what does that entail when it's like yeah when it's not when backed by power when it's not backed by force of violence I don't know if that works. And I don't know if, I don't know this whole neo-reactionary mole bug patchwork type and capish thing. I don't think that that works because of the way that capitalism functions. It has to have these infinitely large structures to like, it sets the parameter. It needs this structure of the state, whatever the form the state takes mm -hmm. to set the boundaries for the game. 
And without that, whenever there's different rules being played for different for the same game, when there's a thousand different games going on and the rules are all da da da, I don't think that is going to be- benefits capitalism's own reproduction, right? I think oddly it actually does because I think that is how the international financial market is is basically run. That capital's reproducibility is in sort of the rigging of the game. So, for instance, I'm thinking about a few years ago that they came out that one of the major investment banks was literally rigging the LIBOR rate. Yeah, the LIBOR rate being the base interest rate where all other interest rates are basically derived re- referencing that. to. You know, yeah. you're always this many basis points over the LIBOR rate. The LIBOR is the rate at which banks lend to one another. One another yeah. So it's usually like the lowest interest rate. And it turns out that people at these investment banks were making their money simply because they got to set the LIBOR rate. So they were setting the rate and then just pocketing the money yeah. in order to reproduce the profits of their investment bank. So right. I think what we see is actually this financial market is almost way too captured by the referees because the government has basically given investment banks the whistle, so to speak. They are the referees of their own game. Yeah. The SEC has no teeth. The US government has almost never stepped in. No one's ever gone to jail over anything that's happened yeah. in financial fraud except trust you know, like Enron or, or big ones. <laughs> trust right. haven't been touched in over a century. Right. So you have this big problem of, well, who is setting the rules of the game? Because you're right, it's important. If the rules were set better, there really wouldn't be as much of a need for like a Bitcoin or these there's these ulterior economic forces that aren't captured by the the goons of the international financial system, which are basically like 10 investment banks that control the entire right. world for both like currency transactions, interest rates, securities exchanges. And the economy reproduces itself based on their cheating. Yeah. The reproduction is based on their ability to cheat in the system. And this why is you clearly, saw that, yeah, the clearly right. like the GameStop situation. Games, I was about to say, like, clearly that's the case. This ideological idea that it's a free market, you know, just invest yourself is completely out the window now. We realize the capitalism doesn't reproduce itself on its own freeness of exchange. It reproduces itself on how good these investment banks can break the system. How yeah. closely can we keep this ledger so that it's the fungibility is sort of kept in check, so to speak. See, I still see that going back to ultimately the state having this capital and state being a unified, well, maybe not a unified body, but there being like them being almost one in the same in the sense of because. Well, even just printing money, like you're absolutely well, like, right. Yeah. Government like government prints the money. <laughs> yeah. The government prints the money. That's awesome. Yeah. Question. I think you're absolutely right that like the government does set those. And I think that. And the Those government are is necessary. controlled by the by capital, although right. it's not a one to one like system of control. It's not. Yeah, um, there's a lot more dialogue between institutions. But ultimately, like at the end of the day, property is backed by violence. The big thing about Stirner that I think he elucidates with capital is at the end of the day, property relations come down to force. If I have the force to take you off of your property, what are you going to do? Like if I'm like a superior alien race and I want the earth, I'm going to take the earth from you. It's not your property. It's my property because I have the ability to take it from you. Anyway, exactly. (laughs) That's how I see it. But uh, it's like I see this capital capture of that sort of government monopoly on power, which we saw in that GameStop thing with there's a violence to telling people who owned GameStop, making them sell it. That's basically, you know, the same thing as holding a gun to your head and saying, no, 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 you can't do it. You know, I make the rules now. It's just my pure violence that is forcing you to sell these stocks. It has nothing to do with the rules of the game. In fact, this goes completely against the rules of the game. But I have the violence as, you know, 
basically, I think it's the hedge funds more than even the government, but the government, you know, is sort of their, their functional rule makers, right. their, they're, their, their fake referee, yeah, you know, exactly. but it's Citadel who comes down to Robin Hood or the SEC and says, fix this. They have to give the their violence, you know? Yeah. They have to give the appearance of, uh, that's where like this simulation shit comes into play. It's like, mm. it's weird because everybody knows that the simulation is a lie, but they still believe in it. And the even though the people that are reproducing this, even the people that are reproducing the simulation know that they're lying and it's obvious that they're lying and everyone can tell that they're lying, but it just <laughs> keeps on going under its own like inertia. I just wanted to bring one quick point because I think I can tie it. This all ties back back into <laughs> Leotard yeah. and when it, Nick Land's writing, and I think it's his most important writing, my favorite piece of work by him, Capital and the Prohibition of Incest or prohibition on incest, when they talk about this notion of like this, let's just call it like this fallow capitalism, which is the human security system, whatever the fuck that means, is trying to con con completely control the limits of capital propagation. And in that sense, it's a very conservative system. It tries to set up the rules. It tries to control, let's just call it like this feminine force within capitalism. And I think Deleuze and Guattari kind of point this out which is just like this, this deterritorializing, which I think is why Nick Land focuses on deterritorialization so much, but it's this deterritorializing force by the market system to completely like decimate conservative structures or conservative systems. And in that sense, it's like what we see with, it's exactly the point, the GameStop fiasco is the financial overlords are kind of getting upset that for once the people are kind of setting up their own rules or kind of taking back in a way they're kind of, actually playing the game as you're supposed to play the game by their own rules. They're playing yeah. it on their terms and they don't like it when, when I guess you play the game on their, on their, on their terms when, it, when exactly. it's bad for them. But that's exactly a conservative view of the propagation of these legacy institutions of the family of, of the familiar, let's just say, which is you no, know, these already established institutions, firms, trusts, hedge funds, we're supposed to be the ones in power, not nobody else. And, and then that, that sense, it's, it's this, this propagation, this this successive or this vertical succession of the patriarchal lineage. And a lateral move would be democratization of these market forces. And in a way, crypto kind of takes us to kind of meme it, crypto takes us back to imminence, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what are the possibilities? Let's just take it as necessary. We have to work under capitalism. There is no real horizon of revolution as of right now. Mm -hmm. What forces can we use to for revolutionary potential, which are already captured and codified by capitalism itself? And in a way, let's intensify desire so that there's another qualitative change within capital. The whole meme of accelerate the process. Leotard, in a way, is yeah. already explicitly saying that by you know, it's like this this intensification of the libidinal band. There's always going to be the surplus desire, which is going to try to be enclosed by the use of currency. Yes, we understand that. How can you force a qualitative change within these already existing structures, these rigid designated systems? Let me ask you this. So maybe I don't have a good understanding of human security system, but my understanding would, in this context of GameStop is that the Wall Street bets traders are the human security system that are fighting against the inhuman machinations of finance capital, the machine of finance capital, right? And they're sort of the human, the fucking, to take it to Star Wars, they're the rebel alliance that are this ragtag team of groups that, that are going to fly into this exploitable bit of code in the Death Star that allows them to access its self-destruction. 
is the human security system, whether it's just a few people on Wall Street or not, it's always trying to do the most conservative thing, the most negantropic action. And the process, let's just call it the process, is always trying to do the, the fastest, yeah. The fastest way to actually produce cash. It doesn't care what it is. It doesn't yeah, care. Exactly. Yeah. There's no value judgments. Yeah. That, I think that's very much libidinal economy, leotard. And yeah. yeah. And so in, in that sense, it's like, I think leotard brings this up in terms of passivity, a politics of passivity. I forgot wh- which work he talks about this. A politics of passivity isn't just sitting around your house and consuming media and blah, blah, blah. And just being like, oh, well, the revolution will eventually come. Well, politics of passivity is taking action in the marketplace, intensifying these codes, being the most capitalist subject you can be. Right. And at the same time, it's like capitalism does not have the, or capitalism in terms of human encoded capitalism, let's say these financial institutions, they don't have the, the structures or the, the potential to completely codify all of desires. The hyperproduction of desire itself is a re- revolutionary force. And I think yeah. even Leotard, I mean, Deleuze and Guattari kind of draw yes. up on this in a lot of their work, especially in Anti-Oedipus. And I think in some of the, the, the plateaus. I think that was really well put. I really liked what you said there. That really synthesized a lot. Taylor, you've been quiet for a while. Oh man, I was just letting you guys, um, you know, you were you're making some good connections with, with the crypto stuff, and uh, I do think it's interesting that we talked about sort of the the future, if you will, of sort of a you know economic. Um, so I think here, like novelties. the block blockchain in particular, here's here's maybe something I can pose to you that you can run with is. Blockchain is effectively a ledger system and to very be very simple with it. And so maybe there's some type of, so there's a relation there to like this function of annulment, annulment, annihilation, return to zero in that <laughs> circular movement. I would think of it in a different way, okay. at least from a different aspect insofar as one thing that we can come back to, we brought up expenditure and bataille last time. And I think that one thing that, that, that's underlying the whole phenomenon of crypto is this almost inconceivable expenditure of, of energy, right, of electrical power. And so in that sense, I, I wouldn't necessarily Ooh. be able, you know what I mean? Like I wouldn't yeah. necessarily be able to, to reduce it back to this more traditional notion of sheer exchange. There is this sort of plugging in directly of intensities into this creation of wealth in whatever form. Now, obviously, in, you know, obviously other forms of, of money, other forms of exchangeability don't preclude this. It's just a, a more directly conceptualizable, almost pure form of expenditure, right? That, that can even be like calculated and, and reduced to this one type of you know, input because when we are talking about "quote unquote" mining, we're we're also talking about just it, just an, an incredible amount of of energy uh, expended, and uh, and I think that what's interesting that, that you guys the reason why I went quiet is because I was I was enjoying the conversation, but I was also thinking about how maybe this gives us a chance to turn towards the, the end of the chapter and talk about uh, Leotard's discussion of mercantilism. I mean, I think that 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 would be kind of a good way to start to to close out the the chapter. And um, you know, I it's interesting um his 
he mentions this letter written to, what is it? Is it Louis the 14th? Louis the 14th. So he's got his little economic advisor and Leotard has a huge block quote from the, the letter written by his economic advisor, Colbert, to Louis the 14th. And he's distinguishing how he's, he's already kind of to, you know, talked to us about this, the, the game theory about not only are there zero-sum games, but in a perfect system of information where both parties sort of share information in this sense of good faith, as he would put it, they can, they can both sort of eke out minimum, min-max min their, their gains. And he mentions that this type of logic is not necessarily in light of just using this, this letter as a, as a means of putting all the pieces of mercantilism into play. One thing that's kind of left out is, is the very fact that in mercantilism, it seems that one of the ways of winning the game is precisely for the game to stop, right? That, that all wealth would concentrate back into France and thereby depriving the other, the other countries, rendering them destitute, basically making them lose the, lose the game. As though the, the game isn't meant to be interminable and infinite, right? The, the game is supposedly ends when, when all the silver and gold accumulate in Versailles, right? In the, the center of, of the palace. To be like nullified too through like excess as well through the goal. I forget, doesn't he go on about the adornments of the expenditure for expenditure's yes. sake within Versailles? Yes, yes. So, so it's not, it's not about, this is why it's different than, this is why it, uh, it'll be different than, than what capital does with, with interest and sort of an investment or whatever. The, the surplus value, if there, if we can even call it that, is this, it, it gets us again back to Bataille. It's this, it's this, uh, sacrifice isn't really the word, but it's, it's this kind of waste. It's this wasting yeah, that uh, through, through, yeah, well, it's less potlatch, but more of this, what the court does, what the king is able to do with this, with this accumulation is precisely to kind of waste it in, in these shows of power, in these shows mm-hmm. of feasts, in this production of prestige, right? right, Which has its own type of, we could even say libidinally economic value and form that's not necessarily, I think it's, he puts it, it really It well. has a function. It's it not- does have a function. But it's, he says it's, I mean, if there is a profit, it is this, this waste. It is this lavish sort of production of prestige. He, he says it, I love how he sums it up. I think he says in exchange, he says it's not for profit making, it's for extravagance. And there's the two sides of mercantilism, which is not just this sort of min-maxing of exports and imports, Right, because because the whole point of France accumulating all this gold is that it doesn't need to take stuff in; it can produce all of its shit. But everybody else around them wants their wines, wants their 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 wheat, and potentially their their culture too. Right, because for Leotard, it is also about this this uh, circulation of concepts of ideas. I, I like how he puts it with says something about in exchange the inexchangeable. So I think that what's interesting about this is. This we could even say it is like production for the. It's, it's not necessarily production for more profit. The this production for it, it's not just for extravagance and, and not for exchange. It's for the inexorbitant or the the exorbitant, right? That which is inexchangeable. 
Yes. But Ty's notion of the accursed chair, you know, it's like that thing that's always destined for waste. Mm -hmm. In a way, what this sounds like, Taylor, and you can correct me if I'm wrong or maybe disagree, which is just like a transcendental a transcendental waste if you're going to put it in Kantian terms mm-hmm. um which is like this irreducibility of waste of any commodity so for example like kind of plug in my own shit i wrote about this in that transcendental deduction yeah. of oil which is oil produces plastic and that's irreducible waste you can't get rid of that and in, in, in this sense and if you attribute it to culture it's the production of culture but not because not for culture's sake it's for the ex- expenditure of that energy which cannot be totalized by the system for profit. It's just expended for expenditure's sake. So it's transcendental waste. You can't get rid of that notion of waste, ontologically or even metaphysically prior to any utility value. Man, I'd be interested to look at that through the lens of Lacan and see if that has any... I don't know, like you could go on some Lacanian rabbit hole there. The notion Uh, of the remainder, right? Yeah, of that that surplus, mm -hmm. right? A couple of things, though, that I... One thing that I... Chris, you might be able to speak to this is Taylor was making me think about, so with mercantilism, there is the potential for disequilibrium within the international markets. Right. But now the way that currency works, our trade deficit with China is not necessarily a bad economic indicator, right? Right. Because of the way that those exports and imports sort of do, they in a way nullify one another. And I don't know finance well enough or, you know, economics well enough to articulate this specific terminology of how that operates, but there is this nullification there. Yeah. And it comes from, in economics, they obviously, they call it comparative advantage is their their term for this post-mercantilist reasoning for why everybody can benefit from the economy through trade. It's easy to think about it. I think Nick Land has a very succinct way of thinking about the movement of economies into like hyper modern, high skill, you know, like white collar jobs is basically always going to, and he calls it like the city itself is basically just an export implosion because now you need to import most materials and you're exporting basically brain, you know, brain power, like, you know, skill-based labor, you know, mm-hmm. and you're importing, importing, importing. Now that doesn't mean that you're, you're doing poorly. It means you're doing well, actually. It means that your economy is at the highest comparative advantage because you're providing the highest valued yeah. skills to the Relative. world. Right. Yeah. But it also leaves you open to vulnerabilities. You know, if you're importing everything, it makes you politically vulnerable. And I think it's easy to understand comparative advantage is sort of, instead of when you have the baby and the mother, the baby, all it can offer is its mouth and its pleasure and it's love for its mother, you know? Mm-hmm. And the mother's like, well, I have a lot of milk, you know, and I'd be happy to give you this milk for this pleasure. In the same way that like a very productive economy that has a lot of one thing is completely willing to provide it to a country that doesn't have that thing in exchange for something else, you know, where they both seem like they're getting something out of it, just like the baby and the mother are both getting some sort of net benefit. It's not zero sum in the sense that someone's losing and someone's winning, right? But I think it's a lot more complicated than that And that comes out in Foucault's lectures on biopolitics, where he speaks long time about mercantilism as actually a political thing. The idea being that you could basically set up Europe so that there would be peace by countering people in this sort of zero-sum economic game, right? And if somebody got out of order, then, you know, you topple them and you try and bring it back to normal, right? But the world wars showed that that's actually a powder keg. Mercantilism works like that. You're always countering each other with these these huge 
political sort of, you know, coalitions that have to fight each other in world yeah. wars. You yeah, know? that's a great, that's a great model. To yeah, exactly. Yeah, and great. then, so the liberalism that Foucault wants to put out, the biopolitics of it, is a new version where instead of infinite growth on the level of being a country and trying to become the greatest empire, right? Infinite growth in a mercantilist world where you want to become the strongest country, there's infinite growth inside your economy, and then everybody puts their power into police states, right? So instead yeah. of external enemies and allies, you just have this infinite game of growth in this global economy where you're trying to grow the fastest, where instead of you know directing your military attention towards those formerly antagonistic, uh, antagonistic countries, you're actually trying to create a sort of police state inside your own country that's going to allow you to form that infinite growth. And that's Foucault's distinction between like the mercantilist world and the liberal one that we're that we entered into a long time ago, but that we're still in now. What I think is interesting here is in the context of the game theory, you know, zero sum game elements of it, because one thing and the Wall Street bets GameStop stuff gives this a, a new relevance in the sense that I forget who said this, but it's that saying information wants to be free. A lot of the reason that corporations, companies, uh, institutions, even their power is within information itself because they have act they have access to information that we do not. Like even when you're mm -hmm. negotiating your salary or whatever, the individual in capitalism is always at a disadvantage to institutions because we lack, there's a disequilibrium and access to information. And what you're seeing here is that revolutionary element of capitalism pressing itself through digital communication technologies, which are deterritorializing these historic institutions, the stock market and et cetera, et cetera, right? But it's ultimately that information, like you're not, that's sort of the losing battle of the process of deterritorialization and re-territorialization is it's going to become more and more increasingly difficult to maintain a monopoly on information. And as soon as the information gets out, as soon as there can be competitors across any from anywhere, then that game becomes, then that's the fear of the capitalists. That's the hedge fund managers. Nadir is this world where they don't have access to information that the peons Right. like us do, right? And Absolutely. if you take that and multiply that out like a thousand different ways across the world economy, then you can sort of see how that potential in the future for revolutionary developments, notwithstanding climate collapse, right. of course, <laughs> which is the big check on all of that, I think. But yeah. I don't know, it'd be, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, it's interesting that he, he comes back to this notion of the of the the two stages, right, and the and the, the this opening up of a theatrical volume that he's been elaborating throughout the book, and he comes back to ancient Greece, both in contradistinction to, but also in conformity with mercantilism, and he kind of says that, you know, rather than sort of the structural emptiness of the the monarchic center, you've got the whether we call it the agora or whatever, you have the meson, right, the the center from which potentially any Greek citizen could could speak, and so that that's that's kind of that that stage, right? The 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 setting up of the of the theater, right inside the enclosure of the city. And he says, um, if this stage exists in the republics in the Greek republics, it is in order to distinguish a treasure of words rather than of riches. 
If the exclusivity proper to the determination of power and representation fixes its bar anywhere, it is there on the skin of language rather than on that of goods. The tribunal soon ceases to be an empty and accessible milieu. It becomes the theater where words are amassed and squandered, procuring prestige. It is not enough to see in the rhetoricians and sophist linguistic techne the symptom of a professionalism affecting speech. It must also be considered as the acquisition and use of an enunciatory treasure, giving privileged access to the stage of assemblies simply because these statements are credible and creditable. The Republican tribunal would be a stage where one expends language as pure prestige and loss. As in mercantilism, this does not preclude, but implies the generalization of commerce, the commerce of words. But as in mercantilism, circulation linguistic in this case must under the cover of discharging the obligations contracted in an egalitarian fashion among fellow citizens, allow kings, rhetoricians, and sophists to speak so as to ruin their partner's oratorical credit and ensure their exclusive ownership necessarily consumptive from this point on of the treasure of speech. And this gets us back to how he's saying one of the passions, one of the desires of playing the game isn't necessarily to extend the game and keep the parties being fungible, exchangeable. Instead, with mercantilism and in this sort of uh, discussion of you know, Greek oratory, it is in fact to sort of win by, by ending the game, right? By, by defeating or killing um, the other party. The literal game of monopoly, right? It's to acquire, right. like you literally monopolize the entire board. Yes. You capture all the money in the bank, etc. I remember Louis C.K. telling the joke about Monopoly. Like he hates he hates that game, but he kind of perversely loves playing it with his young daughters because you know the five year old doesn't really understand what's going on. It's like okay, no, 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 you're you're out of the game. I'm gonna take all your shit and I'm gonna use it to absolutely crush your sister. Right? Like <laughs> he's like he's like um, yeah. And it, but it also comes back to that that interesting little diagram about the story about Tosca and Scarpia, right? The, and the reasoning and whether they're, they're, they're playing in good faith. Right. And whether the, and of course he's saying like one of the things that um, that's not in the grid is the fact that Tosca could, could kill the, the bad cop, right. That, you know, losing her, her lover and having to submit her herself to him for sexual gratification. One of the things left out is that she could, take murder into her own hands. And so I think that that sets us up for the discussion of mercantilism and this discussion of, of sort of, as you guys are talking about, imperializing the, the whole earth and gathering all the riches back into the, into the center, which, you know, in a certain way is a good model for understanding how, in a certain sense, that's also nihilistic because accumulating it all into the center merely would redouble and re-triple, et cetera, the 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 force and conviction of the barbarians at the gates yeah yeah uh, you know very, i mean that's very... <laughs> i mean that's that's that's, that's too, like in the marxist yeah. that's interesting too coming from leotard in the marxist sense because that's ultimately that's kind of the su sui generis of the whole like right the classes the class warfare right eventually the right conditions of the proletariat become so distasteful that they re revolt right but so i i don't know that's an interesting contradiction or disequilibrium in Leotard. It's also why he brings up Hume and this almost naivete of Hume saying like, oh, what if four-fifths of the of the commerce or the economy of, of the wealth in England just suddenly vanished 
then sort of almost like by virtue of a of the physics of a vacuum you know it it would you know accelerate the means by which that the country enriched itself right because of this void and leotard was kind of like that's the jealousy in trade and mercantilist trade that he'll distinguish from the the envy or enviousness of capital which is something that he doesn't really unpack too much but he at least like insinuates i was thinking about this to this um zero-sum game also in the context of information but applying it to like our pre-episode discussion about there's a little bit of an analogy analogy between the Wall Street bets and like the podcast sphere in, in a sense, right? There, we're the sort of barbarians at the gate in, this, in a sort of similar fashion because of this restriction of information behind the wall, the paywall of academia. Well, this gets us back to what we, we yeah. started with. Yeah, initially, exactly. Right? This, <laughs> yeah. this notion that is it that that information, knowledge, even truth, whatever you want to call it should be kept under lock and key right i mean it's it reminds me of alexander pope right when he talks about a little learning is a dangerous thing right and and, and it's important i know it's it's a little learning right we it has to be supplemented by kind of drinking deep from the the well of knowledge yeah. right so uh well what's the the bushes baked beans what's the recipe what are the 23 herbs and spices right the violence of the state allows that monopoly on intellectual property which is obviously a big, I mean, that's a capitalist thing is intellectual yeah. property, right? That information does want to be free. So it's as, the Coca-Cola formula kept in the vault, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. So, but that what keeps the barbarians away is this violence of the state, the threat of violence, because if we went to, if we stole that information from whatever company, whether it be Coke or KFC or whomever, or Bush's beans, we would, the threat of state violence would be weighed upon us. Yeah, and you also see it in, um, I mean, the the most famous or infamous cases of the, with Snowden or with Reality Winner, you know, all these, these means of, of freeing information that, that the state deems critically, you know, uh, in need of keeping under wraps, right? Right. That is for, for, uh, you know, for privileged eyes only. We're kept in this as subjects of capital. We're in this sort of prisoner's dilemma against one another at all times. The game tells us to not to cooperate with other people in a yeah. sense. It forces us to cooperate with random strangers in our jobs. So it's like a weird, maybe dispositif in that sense that it has the dual force of both bringing us together through the corporation or through the company and forcing us to produce with others that we may not have any other ties to. There's no clan or blood ties to whomever our co-workers are largely, right? So in that sense, there's an egalitarian element to that social formation because of that. There's no family, or at least in its idea of formulation, there's less nepotism within capitalism because of competition where every person is set against one another. I don't know. It's just a weird sort of dyadic formulation where we're encouraged to group with strangers in a sense, but we're also not. We have to be suspicious of strangers because they're in competition with us for what we perceive as a zero-sum game. I don't know. That's weird. But anyways, I'm rambling. No, it's the meme of Rupert Murdoch with the plate of cookies and the the white worker has one cookie and he's like, watch out, the the foreigner's going to take your cookie. 
that's, I mean, but that also gets us back to just classical notions of class consciousness and these other things, right? Where it's, you know, it is about showing where all sorts of different interests, so to speak, are not necessarily in conflict, but as Deleuze and Guattari show, it's not necessarily as powerful as the unconscious investments we have in reproducing a certain right. form of society, which maybe have different forms of uh, exclusion, right? Yeah, right? It goes back to our idea of the reproduction of capitalism and the need to reproduce a culture that is conducive to capitalism and its reproduction, right? So there was a book recently I was reading called Red Pill by Harry Kunzru, I think it is. There's an idea in it that I think is very true where there is this cultural need to create the situation for capitalism, which needs to be atomized individuals competing with each other in a Hobbesian universe. And in Red Pill, this uh, show called Blue Lies, which I actually like to watch these shows too, like self-defense or like cops or something like that, that show you the world as like this Hobbesian man against man. People are shooting each other in the streets. It's a war zone out there at all times is the conducive cultural entertainment and the cultural ideology that's conducive to, oh, I'm competing against these people. You know what I mean? But even a step further, creating the cultural conditions for gun violence and creating a situation that can create enough of a Hobbesian environment to impose that as spectacle onto the entire society in order to reproduce the same exact sort of atomizations, skepticism about your neighbor, skepticism about cooperation, about helping, and knowledge that you are sort of in it for yourself. You're there to protect yourself. You're there to make money for yourself. And everybody else is out there basically either to kill you or to take your money. So there's these almost micro fascist elements that need to be screwed into the culture in order to create the means for a successful capitalist society. If you're without, then no one is, there's no incentive to help you out right there's no incentive for mutual aid if you do this form of expenditure of potlatch in your particular role then that's your the in this forced zero-sum game of it you lose it's a riskier libidinal investment for me to drive by the panhandler than it is for me to give him food exactly and there's the culture trying to produce that fear of the panhandler you know what i mean of losing of losing your investment and being unable to play the game at all. Right. Or that that person is dangerous, like with the whole cops thing with the news itself. I've uh, recently had this happen to me where I I like uh, am very involved with like the homeless community in Chicago here. And I know everybody near me and I've been around them for like years or whatever. But recently there was like a random shooting in my neighborhood where someone killed like nine people in a random violence. And everybody I talked to is, well, you should stop talking to the homeless people. You don't know who they are. You don't know if that could happen to you. And there's this idea of culture slowly providing that necessary skepticism towards someone who is in need, thinking, no, they're not in need. They're, they're hungry to get me. They're yeah. going to take it out against me. Like, if I'm not going to help them. It's more likely that they're going to hurt me, which is the ideology necessary to sustain a capitalism that is about that kind of like competition against someone who wants your stuff. Neo Leviathan arrives from the future. Exactly. <laughs> Neo Hobbes. He's from Boston. His name is Hobbes. My name's Thomas Hobbes. Any closing thoughts? It's been a good, yeah, it's probably a good time to wind down. I, I have to go as well soon. I was just going to plug for today. I was reading The Money Plot by Frederick Kaufman, A History of Currencies, Power to Enchant, Control, and Manipulate. And it's the perfect companion piece if you're listening to this podcast and are interested in the trade section of Loyotard. It's, he's a journalist at CUNY, but he writes about money. And it's like a narrative of money 
from its conception to now and how it's been used in that sort of fiat form that we're talking about and also how it's been used to sort of use social control. And I think that was reading these two books together gave me a really good sort of view on sort of the the more abstract and a very historical materialist view of trade and currency that I highly recommend. So if you if you want to read that it's The Money Plot by Frederick Kaufman. I just want to acknowledge that I think Leotar like I said in the group chat is just an amazing writer. I think one of the most skilled writers that I've read. Some of these passages in this book or in this section were just utterly, just I was blown away, just utterly brilliant shit. I highly enjoyed it. I feel like I should at least find one to read. I had a quote that I thought was was great and we could yeah, have. Go ahead. It starts off in the second argument. So he's, he's talking about, it's after the Tosca Scarpia. It's 179 on mine. It might be like 178 or 77 on yours. I think mine's just a couple pages ahead. All the struggles we transsexual libidinal economists know and lead in order that, as, as was said, women may have the free use of their bodies, in particular the free decision to bear or not to bear children, are Lydian consequences. How we love the Lydians and their daughters. In reality, it cannot be a matter of free use of any use, free or not. What we, and capital, desire is that what is called a woman be made genuinely able to benefit from commercial status in its two aspects, every erection and detumescence of whatever small area of the body band that is attributed to her should first of all be possible and could then be marketed. Therefore, the abolition of erotic prohibitions and her release from the automatic nature of propagation. At the same time, the right to perversion and the right to trade. Such a xenofeminist. Yeah, GXL. Right? Looking at the history of basically trade through the Graeber book was like GAC is where it's so, yeah. <laughs> so true because it was not only that example that I used, but there was all these other examples of, you know, more earlier cultures where the men, the father had the ability to send away their sons or nep- nieces, nephews, wards, etc., to like work off debt that they owed. And these other families as whether it be a straight up chattel slave or even like there are different different arrangements in different cultures where it might have not have necessarily been like a straight up chattel slavery, but they were like certainly not free men or what have you. Yeah, I just think it's it's really interesting that his point is when the Lydians prostitute their daughters, there's no there's no way to even conceptualize a question of use or a question of use value. In that sense, it has nothing to do with the quote-unquote natural way to, to view women would be that their use is, is as a uterus, right? It would be as reproducing more, in the Hellenic sense, more homosexual warrior speakers. With the Lydians and why it anticipates capitalism is this, this kind of, whether you call it deterritorialization or just nullification of use value as a, as a kind of a standard as an anchoring for exchangeability, right? I have another quote, if you didn't have anything else to discuss on that one. It's just that he says that the alleged use of the prostituting the daughters is, is this bargaining of exchangeabilities of organs. This is not necessarily here nor there. This is just like a little section of the text that where I thought Leotard is just on fire with his, uh, with his prose here from 161. But the death drive of which Freud speaks and which underlies our own libidinal economism implies, on the contrary, a tremendous chance, not in itself, but due to its indiscernibility. And if he called it the pulsion of death, it is because this chance inevitably involves the disorder of the dispositifs at work. 
their lethalization just as the proper functioning of these dispositifs. For example, that the insomnia of citizens and commodities stifles beneath its harmonious music, the grating and the cries of all the segments of the body band removed from the circulation of the libidinal fluxes, dehydrated, sterilized, rebellious, subversives beyond concentration. If use value is from the outset instituted with the exchange value and the geometry and the algebra of the city and the market, it is because it is nothing without this exchange value and this insomnia, and one would be unable, as Marx did, to appeal for one against the other, as what is authentic against what is wrongfully assumed. Everything is false and everything is true. Utility and its value are cut-ups, decoupages of bodies corresponding to exchange and its equilibrium. All this is just one dispositif. Use and need are not exteriorities, naturalities, or references from wooden from which one would be able to criticize exchange. And it, it dovetails pretty much with, with what I was yeah. What I was it's, saying is good. Wow. Just the art yeah. artistry of this prose blows me away. It's it so full of, of like the jouissance. It's like, I don't know. It's it's hard to yeah. even describe, but it reminds me of the there was a Nick Land tweet this month, I think it was, where it was Skynet will recognize a good sentence. You know? <laughs> There's something yeah. infinitely transcendental about great writing like this. Even the robots, I think, will understand the, the <laughs> mathematical beauty of a perfectly structured sentence. But yeah, I think we can uh, wrap up there unless anyone else has any last thoughts. Please, no, please speak now. It's good, man. I'm glad we, we got together again. It's, we're moving yeah. forward, plowing ahead. Real pleasure. This was a great one. Leotardo is a uh, transcendental mucho texto. Mucho <laughs> texto. Anybody that wants to plug anything they're doing, feel free to go ahead before we start recording. Follow me on Substack at cutenumina.substack.com. You can catch my blog posts there early, Fridays at 10 a.m. And then they'll be released publicly on Medium at 10 a.m. Central Standard Time on Mondays. That will be... Machine to Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry signing off for the week. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is unconscious. Violent because what happens there is the murder of the queen, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Thank you.